Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So we're going to be looking at uh, most of Revelation 14 today. This is a continuation yet again on our, our road less traveled. And for the last three weeks, we've been working our way through what is commonly called the, the interlude in kind of big church, right? And, and everybody says, uh, what? Uh, <laughs> the interlude. Okay, so remember, Revelation is, is not written in chronological order, okay? So it's this series of, of windows that we're, we're looking through as John sees them. And back on the, the third week of our, our study about Revelation, we were in the throne room of God, right? And we were, were asking this question, who is worthy to open the scroll? There's, there was this scroll that was sealed, and, and John is asking, who is worthy to open the scroll? And, and he's weeping in heaven because there's no one that's worthy that's in heaven, that's on the earth or under the earth. There was no one that was worthy and, until he was reminded, no, there is someone who is worthy. The lamb who was slain, the line of the tribe of Judah, the, the, the root of David, Jesus the Messiah is worthy to open the scroll. And so as this scroll is opened in heaven, there are these seals that are broken. And as these seals are broken, there are these trumpet blasts that come forth. And and then at the seventh trumpet blast, there's silence in heaven. Are we remembering this a little bit? If not, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) And from there, we have this pause or an interlude. See, it all comes together. Uh, and that's what it means. It is this pause, this, this break in between. And in this break, it's, it's where Jesus begins to remind and to reveal the people of God what it is that they're caught up in, that there's something that's happening to, to the people of that day and to us today. And there's things that are going to be happening throughout that time period. And so in the interlude, Jesus is revealing ultimate reality, right? We, we talked about that, that vision of the throne room where all worship is moving to that place. All worship over time, over space, is going to that place, to to the throne of God, ultimate reality. And in this this interlude, we see Jesus helping us to understand who the different players are in, in this cosmic battle that is taking place over time. And through this interlude, we see all of the different players revealed. We, we see the throne room. And so in the throne room, we have the, the one true king. And we have the, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and so we see that as, as one of the, the players in this, in this event that's taking place. And then we have another group that is revealed, right? We have the dragon, Satan, the enemy. And with the dragon, we have these two beasts. And we talked about last week how, how those beasts in, in that time are, were considered dragon-manipulated political power and dragon-manipulated religion, false religion. With the, the sole aim of the dragon and the two beasts 
it being to distract from the worship of the real king. Distract from worshiping the Lord of Lords. And so we have these, these two players, one on either side, that are, that are opposing one another. One is the, the triune God, and one is this mimicry, this mocking of the one true God. But there, there's one piece that we haven't touched on yet. Not only do we have these two sides, we are also involved in this equation. We're in the middle. And there's an important point for us to remember here. We do not get to stay in the middle. We have to make a choice. You do not get to be considered neutral in this battle. We do not get to be considered neutral in this conflict. We are not Switzerland. To be indifferent in this battle means to choose the dragon. To be neutral in and of itself is a choice to follow the dragon. Sometimes we think of, of being on the side of the devil as, you know, that, okay, like Satan worship has to involve like candles and pentagrams and like maybe we're like sacrificing an animal or something like, you know, something really creepy and weird like that, right? But it's more than that. And it's less than that. Really, it just involves indifference towards the one true king of kings. If that's the, the, the focus of my heart is saying, yeah, I don't really care about this whole God thing. I'm, I'm just doing my own thing. I'm going to be good enough. Then that in and of itself is a choice to go the side of the dragon. And this is the, the purpose of the interlude. That's the point of what it is that, that Jesus is revealing, get revelation, revealing to John is that there is a choice to be made and that there are events that are unfolding that, that are prompting, that are, are designed to, to draw people into that choice. As you read through chapter 14, we see that this passage is just covered in the gospel message. This, this passage is covered in the good news of Jesus. And yet when we look at it, it, it can sometimes, on the surface, if, you're not, if you don't know what you're looking at, be a little scary. Sometimes when you look at this, you can say, man, I don't know if I want to be involved in all this. This seems a little, a little off to me. But in reading Revelation chapter 4, this is where I kind of get a little upset. This is where I get a little agitated that this letter, that this message from God that was meant for encouragement, that was meant for building up, that the people of God have been robbed of this letter. How we've been told that this, this book is too complicated for us to understand, that this book is, is too weird, this book is too scary, there are too many people that die in this book, that God is, is mean in this book. No, in this chapter alone, we see time after time after time that God is faithful, that God does what he promises, that God is loving to beyond anything we could ever ask, think, or imagine. This book is written to strengthen the saints in their darkest hour. And so this morning, there's going to be three angels that we look at, and there's going to be two reapings that we look at, and then there's going to be the saints that will be bookended on either, either end of this. 
So first, we have this, this first angel in Revelation 14, uh, verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So here's the, this first angel going out. This angel goes and is sharing the gospel to the world. And I think the first thing that we have to look at is, isn't this the message that we were supposed to be sharing all along? Isn't this the message that when Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, go out into all of the world and, and, and make disciples, baptizing them, right? There's this commission that has been given, and it's not just go out to the people that are right next door to you, go out to all the ends of the earth. All the ends of the earth is every tribe, tongue, and nation, just in case you didn't know. It, it's the same thing. What is the role of the church as this angel goes out? Does this mean, well, the angel's doing it now, so we don't have to do anything? Probably not. That, that doesn't seem likely. So if this is the message that we were already told to proclaim, then this means there, we have divine assistance in this, that there is an angel that is coming along saying, hey, I, we're with you. We're going to assist in this process. And over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about what it looks like to get into the fight. And when we start to understand that we have this divine assistance, that God has purposely placed us in the, the towns and the cities and the families and the neighborhoods that we are in, that should spark boldness within us. It should, should spark a boldness to go out and witness to our neighbors and into our workplaces. That there's, there's heavenly assistance that is with you. Yes, that you have the Holy Spirit in you, and now there's this, this partnering at a larger, higher level that is taking place here. And I think it's just important for us to know, well, well Matt, when is that angel going to be sent out, right? Maybe there's this question of, well, isn't that what happened for... The, the early church in, in like 96 AD when this letter was first written? Or, or was that something that was meant for like the church that was 500 years later? Yes, yes. And then was it meant for us too? Yes. And then is it meant for the future churches? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so it's meant for everyone. That, that God is, is partnering with the church to see his purposes completed. How we want to see your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. And this is how that comes about. And then we have this, this second angel in Revelation 14, verse 8. It says, The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Well, that seems pretty specific, right? Um, now, Babylon, for the, the people that received this letter, that was code for Rome. And, and most of the people that received this have been like, yeah, okay, this makes sense. This is, this is something that is relevant to Rome. Nobody who received this letter saying that Babylon has fallen was like, oh, Rome is done. Because Rome was very much alive and well at the time that this letter was received. Yeah, that's, the, Rome is going to fall, but that's like 200 years into the future. 
But what this angel is doing is, is exposing the lies of Rome, specifically the perversion, the immorality of Rome, that people are, are beginning to wake up and understand, hey, there's, that doesn't seem right. If you don't think that sexual perversion has consequences, then you need to get your head out of the sand. When you start to hear the testimonies of people that God has saved, people that have come out of that lifestyle, the people that have come out of, of darkness, you hear people sharing about things that at one time, one time would have been a source of shame, but now have been turned into trophies of God's grace. And what we see here is as people begin to come awake from the darkness of immoral living that, that is being talked about here, we see followers of Christ showing love, encouraging people, demonstrating hospitality like we talked about last week. And they're there to bring people to Christ as they begin to understand, as they begin to wake up from this terrible lifestyle that they have fallen into. And so the question that we probably need to ask is if Babylon has fallen, whose side are you on? Because Babylon might have met Rome in 96 AD. Babylon probably meant something different in, I don't know, the 1500s. Babylon probably meant something different in the early 1900s. Babylon probably means something different today. I'm not going to sit here and, and point out what, what could be Babylon, but I think we can probably look at our own world and say, yeah, sexual perversion, sexual immorality is absolutely an issue that exists in the world today. <laughs> and if those things are real, if Babylon has fallen, whose side are you on? And the third angel Revelation 14.9 says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the land. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This is hard. You know, I would say this is maybe one of the hardest passages in the Bible to, to read. Honestly. Because you and I, we, we, we drink this, this steady diet of there being no anger or wrath mixed with love. We do. That love is me not caring at all what you do. And you not caring what I do. And, and there not being any consequences for our actions. That, that regardless of all of that, I love you anyway. That's, that's the steady diet that, that we find ourselves, that our world finds itself used to. 
And the smoke of the people's torment doesn't really jive with that, does it? What kind of cruel God is this? How, can, how do these things match? How is it possible to say that God is love and yet he is able to demonstrate this level of wrath? God has such wrath because he is love. The more that you love something, the more capacity you have for wrath. And the way that you can think about this is if you have kids or anybody that you are in a relationship that you love. With my kids, I know that I love my kids. And one of the ways that I know I love my kids is in some measure due to the level of wrath that I would pour out on someone that did something to them. If someone is trying to harm my children, they will deal with me. If I was indifferent to my kids, there wouldn't be any wrath. If I was indifferent to my children, you'd be like, meh, whatever, they're fine. God is love, and thus we see this outpouring of wrath. To follow the dragon and his beast is to actively participate in the destruction of human flourishing. Actively participating in the destruction of men, women, and children. Actively participating in the worship of the state and false religious institutions. Pursuing with zeal and fervor, the destruction and disruption of the shalom that God created the entire universe for. What kind of God would he be if he didn't have wrath towards that? You don't want an indifferent God. When the Bible talks about God's wrath it is always framed in God giving humankind what they have asked for. Now, whether or not there's, there's sulfur and fire, or, you know, how that all works out, if it's a, an image, if it's a symbol, I don't know. And, and frankly, I don't think that's the important detail right now. But what we know for sure is that hell is the absence of God the absence of everything good, the absence of everything that is perfect. So hell means that there is no comfort, that there is no rest, that there is no peace, that there is nothing good. John 3.19 says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And then we have this, this question in John 3.17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So, so where is this judgment coming from? Like, that was literally right afterwards. How did this happen? It's coming from humankind choosing that darkness instead of light. instead of the salvation that they were offered. I would rather choose to walk in the darkness than the light, thanks. That's, that's how this is coming about. And so what is God's response? God's response is to give them what they're asking for. 
Romans 1 shows us. It says that we worship creation instead of the creator. It says that, that we believe that we are smarter than God. I know what sex looks like better than God does. I know what marriage looks like better than God does. I, I know how my money should be spent better than God does. I, I know the, the entertainment that I should take in better than God does. It says, I know what, what is best for me. And then Romans 1.28 says, furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. One author says it this way, nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose in all its implications, nothing more and equally nothing less. The wrath of God is real. It increases over time until it's executed at its appointed time and the consequences are more shocking than we can fathom. The important point, the, the critical point for us to, to take away from this, if you, if you take nothing else, this is what we need to focus on this morning. You do not have to stay under the wrath of God, but to not actively choose to be a follower of Christ, you will remain there. It doesn't matter if you try to be a good person. None of my best efforts will ever be good enough. All of our righteous deeds are, are but filthy rags, the Bible says. I can't earn my way out of this wrath. That's, that's why we come together and, and we sing the songs like, my God is mighty to save. It's not a matter of, of my being good enough, but I was rescued. I was saved. This is the gospel message that we've been saved from the wrath of God. And that, that wrath has been replaced with divine pleasure and, and delight even as we move forward in this life. Okay, so, so how are we supposed to move forward? How are we supposed to join with the angel in this mission, right? So we, we've seen in these other two and that there are ways that we're called to partner with them. Can I just say that this is probably not the message that we should lead with? <laughs> okay, like, let's just think for a minute. Maybe let's not lead with eternal smoke and torment. I, I, I just, now I'm not saying let's be dishonest, but I'm saying that for someone to receive this information, there first needs to be a foundation of love. There first needs to be a foundation of understanding. If I show up and start shouting this type of thing on the bus, A, I'm probably going to get removed from the bus, and B, it's probably not going to do anything other than potentially turn people the opposite direction and say, man, that dude is a weirdo. And they'd be right. That's weird. People don't need to, to act that way. But it's only when I, when I take the time to, to demonstrate love, to demonstrate hospitality, there's that word again, 
that we're then able to have that type of conversation where we're able to share, hey, I love you. I want God's best for you. And this is what that looks like. And, and in you participating in that, it's you stepping out of what is going to happen if you don't. So now we have these two harvests that are talked about. The, the first question is, when, when do these harvests take place? The, the harvests happen when the fields are ripe. Okay, that, that makes sense, right? We don't harvest early because then you wouldn't get anything. You don't want to harvest too late because then you'd also not get anything. So you harvest when the fields are ripe. And when did Jesus say that the fields were ripe? Yeah, John 4.35 is when he said the harvest was ripe. So that, that was a trick question. I already knew. Um, so... The harvest wasn't the problem in John 4.35. What was the problem? The workers. There were were plenty uh, of harvests to be had. It was that the workers were few. The harvest has been taking place, and the harvest will continue to take place. Spoiler, we are part of the harvest. One thing that's interesting is if you you kind of see how popular culture has looked at, at verses like this. Sometimes reaping and harvesting has this negative connotation that there's some like punishment that's associated with it. But never in the Bible is harvesting spoken of as a judgment. That's, that's important to know. Never in the Bible is there a negative connotation associated to harvesting. Harvesting is used to reference redemption. It's used to reference celebration. It's used to reference um, plenty. And so in the, the first harvest in verses 14 through 16, it says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. This is Jesus. Jesus is doing the harvesting. Jesus is harvesting those who would believe in the Son of God. On the cross, Jesus purchased men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and this is the first harvest. But there's a second harvest that's talked about, and this is in 17 and 20. And this is, well, that previous passage was maybe the, the hardest passage to understand. I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood passages. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, just to, to help with that measurement at the end, if we assume that a horse's bridle is about four feet, 
That tells us that the blood flowed as high as four feet deep and about as wide as 200 miles. And it's here where maybe there could be a misunderstanding, where people maybe start looking at this again because you've been fed this lie that says revelation is too scary. Revelation is, is too hard for me to understand. Revelation is all about death and destruction that you look at this and say, man, I, I just don't want to be involved in this. I hope I get raptured ahead of time. But let's unpack this for just a second. This isn't Jesus swinging the sickle this time. Because he swung the first one. We've got somebody else involved swinging the sickle. What does fire represent? Most of the time in the scripture, if you look back at the Old Testament, time after time after time, it represents the power and the presence of God. Was it not through fire that we see the, the burning bush that, that Moses heard from the Lord? Was it not through the, the pillar of fire that, that God led his people through the desert? Was it not through fire that, that came down and consumed the, the sacrifice that was called down by Elijah? Was it not tongues of fire that, that fell on the apostles in the upper room? Time after time after time, we, we see fire as representing the power and the presence of God. And the angel swinging the sickle has authority over the fire. And now let's look at this statement, the vine of the earth. That phrase, the vine of the earth, is mentioned six other times in the Bible. And every single time that it is mentioned in the Bible, it is a reference to the people of God. John 15 says that he is the vine. Jesus says that he is the vine and that we are the branches and that we dwell in him and we will bear fruit. And then there's this, this phrase that's being talked about being taken outside the city. Now, if we go back to the, the uh, book of Numbers, being outside the city was not a good thing. What happened outside the city? Outside the city is where people went when they were unclean. Being outside the city was, was where the, the people that were not part of the, the tribe were, were sent. That was where the, the scapegoat was sent. That was where the trash heap was. But once we get to the New Testament, there's a, there's a slight shift that starts to happen. There's this, this parable that Jesus tells about the, the vineyard owner and his son, and his son is killed outside the city. Jesus takes his cross and he's crucified where? Outside the city. Hebrews 13 reminds us that Jesus was crucified outside the city and not only that, we're called to join him there. The harvest that we're talking about here isn't that all of a sudden there's this judgment being poured out and this represents the blood of all of these people that have done wrong. No, the, the harvest that is being talked about here is Jesus on the cross. Absorbing the wrath of God towards of sin for all people that would be saved, past, present, and future. The whole thing is about blood. And why is there so much blood? It's letting us know that there will be enough. That there is enough blood to cover anything and everything that exists in my life. That, that His grace is sufficient. Christ's death on the cross has fully absolved 
and absorbed God's wrath towards me. And because of that, I'm free. Because of that, I am clean and I am in right standing before God. This message would have energized the people of God. It wouldn't have terrified them. Jesus isn't trying to terrify his church. He's trying to say again, I have chosen you. You are mine. You are not beyond my reach. You are not beyond my love. I am for you. And this shouldn't be terrifying to me. This should be worship-inducing. The great winepress of God's wrath is terrifying for sure, but it was not poured out on us. It was poured out on Jesus. And we are now no longer under that wrath, but we are under his mercy. And so finally, we come to these redeemed saints. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 15, the, the saints are worshiping from, or excuse me, 1 through 5 of 14, the saints are worshiping from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then again in chapter 15, right before these judgments take place, these saints are worshiping God. We have this, this army of the Lamb. And that, that number that comes up, that 144,000, and and. Sometimes we get a little too focused on that number. That, that number, just like the seven that we talked about last week, represents completeness, right? And so when we see that 144,000, what does that mean? It means all of us. All of us are there worshiping. There's one last quote. The new Israel of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Arabs and Kenyans and Norwegians and Brazilians and Japanese, multicultural, multilingual, multiracial, transnational. They are all there with the king singing a new song. The song that gets sung at the beginning of chapter 15 is a song that is sung to the Lamb. And this is the, the best news. We know that God is both lion and lamb, right? That's, that's something that we've talked about before, but it was never the lion that defeated the beast and the dragon. It was the sacrifice of the lamb that defeated the beast and the dragon. This is how I fight my battles. Not the way that the enemy fights, but through praise and thanksgiving to the lamb who was slain. And the song that is sung is, is great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for, you are, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Thank you, Jesus. Dad, can you pass out the communion, please? So this morning, we're, we're coming to the table and we are, are taking this time to remember, taking this time to look back at the sacrifice that was made. I mean, this has been the focus all morning, is the blood of Jesus. And as we participate in this, 
Let this be our song. Let this be our prayer. Let this be the, the worship that comes from our hearts. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God, we come this morning and we proclaim that great are your marvelous and great are, are your marvelous deeds, Lord. Just and true are your ways. God, who is there like you? How can we keep from singing your praise, Lord? How can we, we keep from, from shouting from the rooftops who, what, who you are and what you have done? God, you are holy. And all, all peoples of the earth will proclaim that you are holy, God. Let's go ahead and eat God, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for your blood that was poured out, that, that made a way. Your blood that was complete. Your blood that was more than enough. We thank you and we, we praise your name. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop.